0: Ben Tossel, welcome to the Andy Hackers Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Ben, you're the founder of MakerPad. MakerPad helps makers figure out how to build apps and websites without writing a single line of code. In fact, at the top of your website, it says very boldly, literally in bold font, whatever tool you want to build, you can do it without code. You've been working on MakerPad for less than a year now, but it already, I think, made over $100,000 in revenue in the first half of this year, and it's probably on track to do more than that in the second half. And you've tweeted that that's 95% profit. You have very few expenses. You built the whole site in a meta kind of way without writing any code yourself. And what's the craziest to me is that this is a side project for you. You've got a full-time job. You run MakerPad in your free time. So let's start there. Most any hackers are doing this for freedom. They want to be their own bosses and control their own time. If they had something like you do that could make them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in their free time, they would quit in a heartbeat and just go work on that. So, I think this is kind of revealing of your motivations. Why are you building MakerPad and why isn't it your full time thing?
1: Well, first of all, that was uh, an awesome uh, introduction. So, I appreciate that. Well, I'm working with Ernest Capital, which is, as Tyler, who runs the fund, wouldn't want to call it alternative to VC, but more early stage investing in bootstrappers. So, it's people who get to sort of 3K, 5K MRR who want to go full time on this thing, which is sort of like a funny full circle that like potentially make could be sitting in that in that bracket as well it's basically solo founders or very small teams who are starting off on their um, bootstrapper journey but we sort of give them the, the cash to go full-time and then they can quit their jobs hire some extra support staff and and get access to our mentors and and deals and things like that we've put together for them so um i mean that's really like an amazing opportunity for me and i i Tyler basically reached out to me when I was doing a previous project. I think it was more for, he was seeing if I would want to take investment. But then he said what the fund was going to be doing. And I said, I just have to be involved. Like, I just, I want to be involved in the fund. Don't worry about the investment stuff. I didn't know. Sort of up in the air with doing things full time as I've been on my own for two years or so. So I just wanted to be involved in the fund. So here I
0: am. That's uh, pretty unusual for a founder to talk to an investor and decline to take investment and instead ask to work with the investment firm. What was it about Earnest Capital that made you so excited to work on it?
1: Well, it's just one of these things I think that comes around only once every several years. I think the community's been desperate for it. Indie hackers are blowing up your site and everything around that. The community is just becoming bigger and bigger, and there's more like stories, especially you're telling, especially on this podcast, that people are going out and doing things a different way than raising VC money. So Just seeing what Tyler was, what his vision was for Ernest, I just really wanted to be involved. And my whole career in tech has been trying to help founders do things. I never thought of myself as, I'm going to be the founder who can have this big company and do something myself necessarily. Mine was more for fun or learning. But yeah, it just gave me the opportunity to be able to work with founders on different problems. Every week there's something different. So yeah, it's just been awesome to, uh, to
0: be a part of that. It's funny hearing you describe it that way, because that could easily be the description for your business MakerPad as well. You're helping founders accomplish things every week, you're working on different problems. And I'm I'm curious how it works, actually. If I am somebody who doesn't know how to code, and I come to MakerPad, your website, how do you help me learn how to build something without code?
1: So we've got basically a series of tutorials, and we've got templates on there as well. I say we, it is just me, but some of the tutorials are free. Some are put behind a paywall for pro members. It's essentially broken down into either by use case or by a role. So if you're looking to build like an Airbnb style app on the web or a mobile app, then there's different versions of that. So you can, you can follow the tutorials using Glide to make the Airbnb mobile app, or there's a tutorial that teaches you how to make Airbnb on, on Webflow, Airtable, and Zapier sort of all tied together. But then there's other smaller tutorials, which are things like how Superhuman built their product market fit engine. And I just built a sort of a version of that using Airtable and, and do a step-by-step run through of how to build your own version of that too.
0: Yeah, you've got a ton of stuff on here. And it's pretty obvious that you're just really good at building things without code. You've been doing it for years and your website is really just a way for you to take all that knowledge that you've accumulated and impart it onto other people who show up who've never built anything without code. What's interesting to me about this is I know so many software engineers, so many developers who will never build anything on their own. They kind of someday sort of maybe possibly want to do that, but they never get over that initial hurdle because it's like quite frankly kind of nerve-wracking to build something and release it to the public. And yet here you are, you don't know how to code, and yet, you've built up this huge repertoire of all these things you're able to build. What got you over that initial hurdle that stopped so many other people from getting started?
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm sure so many people listening and, and so many people from Indie Hackers will understand this situation where you want to build something, you're not technical, you almost try and go out and find that technical co founder. Oh, hey, can you build this thing for me? Why should I build it? Blah, blah, all that sort of, the, all those struggles and, and then you basically come to two paths, which are yeah, finding that technical co-founder or you learn to code. And for me, it was like, well, I don't want to spend nine months learning to code when I'll then be able to make some like shitty version of an app idea that I may have. When for me, I had like ideas every week or there's a few ideas that I I'd had that I thought, well, this could be cool. This could be cool as well. And very, I imagine, basically none of the time when you think of something you want to build, build it it's not necessarily going to be the thing that becomes successful so i thought the only way to build something and not be so attached to it that i'll be upset when it like doesn't work is what's the minimum time i can do i can like spend on it to build it and then when i was working at product Hunt, it basically meant that i got to see all these new tools launching and there was things like card which launched that i was like wow i can actually just build a really quick website in like 10 minutes if I want to. So it allowed me to like really explore these tools and just like push them to the limit. And then that what sort of got me to make a bug using these other people's tools, which were launching, uh, launching all around me.
0: They say that to the man with a hammer, suddenly everything starts to look like a nail. In other words, whatever tool you have at your disposal, you begin to kind of see the world through the eyes of somebody using that tool. So if you're a developer, you're sort of obsessed with solving every problem using code. And yet here you were, not a developer and suddenly all these other tools are coming out of the scene that help you build apps and websites without having to write any code whatsoever so of course that's what you're gonna do what would you say was your initial motivation for building all this stuff
1: I think the motivations changed over the years like initially I think I thought okay I want to be an entrepreneur I want to run my own business I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30 all these sort of standard things and then when you get into it it almost becomes just the thing that you love to do which is figuring out how to build things and I think Lots of people talk about how I'm not a developer, but I build things anyway. It's actually shares a lot of the same mindset around how you think about the problems, break them down, and then you're actually building them. It's just I use other people's code with their tools that I put together. And then once you start building, you just almost get the bug for it and think, oh, I could build that thing. yeah. And then you see something else, you're like, oh, well, maybe I could build something else. Or maybe I can tie these
0: things together. Yeah, exactly. It's like you can't help yourself once you know how to do it. Was there ever a point where you actually considered learning how to code instead of using these no code tools?
1: I've done that it must be 50 times. <laughs> and I've tried <laughs> to um, I've gone on, I've said, right, okay, I'm gonna take this code academy course, or I've I've even spun up a basic product hunt app. It's before I was working there, I remember going through the steps, following all these things, and it just it drove me insane just to see you get to one step, something didn't work. And then it just didn't work and didn't work and didn't work. And then it just never did work. So I thought, I can't do this. But then it's funny how years later, I do the same thing with no code. And there's plenty of times where something doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, and it just won't work. So it's funny how the same, uh, the same problems happen.
0: Yeah, you got to kind of choose your preferred pain. If you really don't like debugging code, but you're okay debugging problems with these no code tools, then just use the no code tools.
1: Yeah, I guess it might depend on almost how your brain works and how your brain sees things. I like to see things in like blocks. Click this, put this here, put that there, connect this to that rather than what I see is just letters, symbols, numbers, (laughs) all in like a massive line. It's like sometimes it looks a bit difficult to me.
0: I love that description of code, just a random collection of letters and symbols and numbers organized into one giant line. Really does not sound appealing when you put it that way. One of the things that you did to avoid having to deal with these giant lines of code, is that early on you partnered with a developer. So there's this guy, his name is Mubs. He is one of the most prolific developers that I've ever talked to. I had him on the Indie Hackers podcast a couple of years back. I think he won Product Hunt's Maker of the Year Award at least once, maybe two years running. And he will put out like five or six apps in the span of a month without breaking a sweat. He just codes so much, he codes so fast, he's really good at it. How did you, as somebody who can't code, convince somebody like Mubs to partner with you on a product?
1: I think it was very unfair that the person I ended up reaching out to was Mubs because like you said, he built so many things that he was like, yeah, sure, it sounds cool, I'll, I'll happily build it. Whereas I know from experience that trying to find other people to build stuff for you is never often that easy. But we were in the same Slack group together, and I was just that sort of annoying person saying hello and trying to be really helpful to everyone else who I was speaking to, and really just talking about ideas and talking about things and just being really, I like to say, helpful. People may not have agreed, but it just helped because Mubs could see that I was being helpful to other people and him with feedback or whatever it was, testing things. So when it came down to, oh, I've got this idea, I wanna build something as well. He was like, yeah, cool, I can build that in like, he can build it in his sleep. So he was like, yeah, sure, I can build that. And I just, I spent hours and hours and hours putting together a massive spreadsheet of all the things that need to go on there. And yeah, I mean, could have done that in his sleep for sure.
0: What was it that you guys actually ended up building together?
1: Well, I was in I was working in social media marketing at the time and Bram Canstein, I might have butchered his name there, he worked on um something called Startup Stash, which is basically just a load of resources for entrepreneurs, everything from idea generation, coming up with names, finding domains, logo design, all that sort of stuff, like everything you'd need to start a like your first project. So I thought well, it'd be quite cool if there was a version of that of like all the marketing things, because there's so many social media tools, there's automation tools, there's like blog creation things, and like there's just tons of other things. So I thought, well, why don't I do it for for marketing focused things? And I thought it was a fairly easy thing to get like my toe in the water of building something, because I could easily put together all these tools in a spreadsheet, beg Mubs to build something for me that I've just uploaded, and then I just thought, yeah, it'd be an easy first step. So that's what um that's what we launched with.
0: Marketing Stack ended up being one of the top 20 most upvoted products of all time on Product Hunt with something crazy like 4,000 upvotes. How did you get it to do so well?
1: I mean, I think that was a bit of a fluke, but I think it was early on in the days when the, the Stash Stack sites had not been done before, really. Like, Bram had his first one, I had the second one, and then basically after that, there was one new in a week. So people got very tired of those, but they were very interesting, like helpful products for people initially. And I think I must have just been, I was in like these Slack groups really trying to be helpful to people that they just wanted to help me with my first product. I was like, oh, this is my first thing. I think I launched it on my uh, my 25th birthday as well. And I don't know, it's just, it really stuck a nerve with some people. And I imagine some of the karma of me, yeah, just being in those groups probably uh, probably helped spur it on more than
0: more than it would have otherwise. This is good stuff. You pretty much just named... Two different unfair advantages that founders can have. The first one is that because you had your ear to the ground, you knew what the trends were on product hunt. And so you were able to capitalize on that early before that particular trend got really old. And also because you were participating in the community, the second unfair advantage was that everybody knew you and everybody liked you because you were helpful and you were visible. And so when you submitted a product, they recognized you. They're like, oh, it's Ben. And of course they're going to upvote you and help you to sort of pay it forward. And these are two things I think any founder can do if you don't just sort of recede into a hole and build things by yourself. I'm curious about the second one. What did it look like exactly when you were helping people out in these Slack groups?
1: I mean, I'd like to see this back too because I'm not sure I was as severely helpful, but I was definitely, I was definitely in. Um, I was in a Slack group called Maker Hunt, and then from there, I was in like the Product Hunt Friends Global Slack group, which was like thousands of people. There's like a product and book club group. So in all of these things, I was just saying to whoever I could, like, let me know if I can help with anything. And so in Maker Hunt, we had lots of, it was almost like the very early version of the Indie Hackers interviews. We just had AMAs with different founders. So I just offered to follow in this. It was all in Slack, basically. So I followed the whole conversation, copied and pasted everything over because obviously everything was going to get lost. Formatted it all into a Medium post and then like posted them out. So we just had these AMAs. They must still be on my Medium somewhere. But yeah, all these articles from like founders, probably some crossover with the ones you've had on the uh, Indie Hackers as well. But yeah, that's where I initially started, sort of being helpful, I
0: guess. Yeah, it almost sounds like you were playing community manager for these Slack groups, which is funny because you ended up going on to become the community manager for Product Hunt itself. That's exactly
1: how it happened. Is I was already the community manager for these groups and product and Slack groups. So all the makers, people launching on product and things already knew, knew me through, through these groups. And Eric Torenberg and Bram, who I mentioned previously, was were both working at Product Hunt at the time. And they actually both separately recommended me to Ryan. So then he like followed me on Twitter and I was at work. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell's happening? And then he DM'd me just saying hey, I think we need to have a chat. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell? And yes, and then had a chat and said, they, they've they got an open and want to hire a community manager and they think that I'd be great for it. So I was like, I'm going to quit my job and
0: do this. Were you nervous at all taking over this job? Because you've never done community management as like a professional. And Product Hunt was huge. It had millions of fans.
1: I didn't know like how big it was, I don't think. Like I was like, oh, this is such a cool opportunity And I was like, well, I'm doing doing lots of this stuff anyway. I must have felt fairly nervous, but I thought, surely I can do this. I've just been the person who everyone's going to and chatting with anyway, but I just thought I'd give it a go. But I remember on my first, the day before my first day, me and Ryan were trying to have a, a Zoom call and I was in Starbucks and the internet was cutting out and he was trying to explain to me how to run the homepage of Product Hunt. And I just couldn't ever figure out. Like it just wasn't working our call so I can really get to the bottom of how to how to run the site. So yeah, on a Monday morning, there was no one no one awake in SF time. I was just here on my own, just like, <laughs> okay, I've got to look after this website now. like how, how the hell am I gonna do this? But I got through it um, in the end, so it was fun.
0: Yeah, it worked out. You ended up staying at Product Hunt for a couple of years and in that time you saw eighty thousand products launch. What are some of the product launches that stood out to you the most and that influenced you?
1: I mean, I can't even remember so many of those projects, but I remember there was, there was a project called "Be My Eyes, where if there's a blind person in ha- in need, that they could switch on the the app straight away, and you would be their eyes. You could help them show, is this milk out of date? All these sort of things. So that was one that, that stuck out for me. But what I really started seeing was people building things to help other people build things. So, like, AJ built a card and released that, and I remember that, and I thought, like holy shit i can i can use this and i just started using it. i was like i probably just stopped working for like half an hour that day and thought oh my god i've already built a website and that's never happened before like that that quick that quickness to build something and have it ready for someone else to go on there was just insane to me and then i saw other companies like webflow bubble because i was in charge of launches there was always people being introduced to me through email there was all the people through yc were all coming through our email to me i just get got speaking to everyone. So it was a chance to really see the sort of behind the scenes of all these things and help them get to launch. And yeah, just the things I saw was like, I need to build more, I need to build more, and I want to do these things. Then the whole sort of chatbot hype was coming around. And then there was something called chat fuel, which was like a super easy way to build chatbots. So I was like, oh my God, I can build a chatbot in like half an hour as well. So there's all these things that just helped with the speed of from having a random idea to then being able to have something to show someone else
0: sounds like it was really coming at you from all sides there. And I think we're all just a product of our environments. If you find yourself in a situation that you're in, where you're seeing all these new product launches every day, where you're getting emails from founders and you're helping them launch their products, where you're seeing all the new things you can do, it's pretty impossible to be there and not get the urge to do your own thing, I can imagine. It's got to be pretty hard to resist that urge. You eventually did do your own thing. You launched your first business called NuCo. What's the story behind that?
1: Yeah, so I built a few things before that, but Nuco was after I left Product Tent, um I've been sort of doing some consulting and, and other things on the side to pay the bills. And I, and I saw all, actually, I saw on Indie Hackers, it was a Go Rails and there's another one. So basically, screencasting businesses. And I thought, I could do that. Like, I could just record myself building these things without code, release one a week, and just charge people for it. I thought, yeah, sure, let's do that. So I used the Product Tent chip feature and messaged a bunch of people who had signed up for a newsletter that I had put out like ages ago and just said look I'm going to do this it'll cost $49 click here to pay now which was basically a link to a type form and you'll get yearly access and this is what I'm doing I didn't have a website ready I had like 10 or 12 people pay me I was like oh my god okay this is something and people seem like they want to do this so I, I used webflow put a website together and I started like on this path to building this company. And screencasting is a harder job than I thought it was. It's really not not that simple. And just I have really struggled to figure out what's the next thing I'm going to build. I've got this pressure now. I've got to build something this week and it's got to be out there. And I'm like, oh, oh no, I don't know if it is going to be good enough. What am what am I going to do with it? So as usual, I went back to Mubs and said, hey Mubs, I'd love to build this into a like a platform where other people can use this. To do other things like host their own hackathons and all this sort of stuff, so you can probably tell already the initial idea had completely changed for no reason other than I thought you needed to go bigger and better every week until it like something really clicks off. So it sort of got down that path, and then had all this pressure of people, more people signing up for more videos and things, which I wasn't putting out as much, and then it was just this new platform that nothing ever happened with it. And I was just sort of a bit lost, like, okay, where is Nuco now? What was this? And that was sort of the end of last year. So it sort of decided to to close it down and rethink what it is I was trying to do or what I wanted to be doing.
0: Where do you think this idea came from? That you had to keep pushing, that you had to keep trying these new things rather than just sticking with your original idea of recording screencasts of how to build these no code apps.
1: Well, I mean, I was in the Silicon Valley bubble. I was in product time. I saw all these companies launching from YC, Slack, everything. The, th- the thing to do was you build a company. You was it grow ten percent a week or a month or whatever it is, and then you raise money, and then that's how the fairy tale ends. It was just it's just being gained in me that that was what you were supposed to do. Like I was reading the hackers on and off throughout the time but always thought yeah but that's only like some people like it, that doesn't happen to most people that they do this bootstrapping thing I don't know if I can really do it I wanted more for no other reason really than it, I wanted it to be this bigger thing so yeah last I think the end of last year I started reading reading some things listening to some things and just like reading some interviews with some people where I thought no that's the situation I'd like or that's how I'd like to run something and not this other way and you just like, instead of reading all the back news posts and stuff of all these big raises, I thought, why don't I just try and build something this other way?
0: I remember kind of following along with Nuco, and you had a lot of things going on that seemed, at least from the outside, like they're doing really well. You had a, what was it, like a 30-day challenge?
1: The 30-day startup,
0: yeah. Yeah, the 30-day startup. That seemed huge. You had like 3,000 people join in the first 24 hours. It seemed like it went really well. What happened with that?
1: It went catastrophically, I think yeah <laughs> uh, uh, it's sort of similar thing to like the hundred day was it a hundred day hundred days of coding, and I just said, Look it'll be thirty days. Why doesn't everyone just try and build something within thirty days? I'll put out some stuff that's like, okay, this is how you can come up with ideas, this is how you can talk to users, this is how you can do this, this is how you can do that, and it started off well, but it's just a difficult thing to try and have three thousand people come together and actually do something and like follow it. I didn't, really, I didn't really put too much thought in it. I thought of the idea, built the website in probably 30 minutes, which also, this is one of the sort of maybe cons of no code is that you can build something so quickly, it doesn't mean you should. But I did. And I launched it. But yeah, it just didn't really, it
0: didn't get to plan. So let's talk about what that looks like when things don't go to plan. How did you decide definitively that these things weren't working and it was time to move on? And what was it like pulling the plug?
1: I think it's pretty easy to know when things aren't going well. It's just whether you accept it or not. I've sat around stressed out that something's not like not clicking. I don't think you can tell when something's not going well, and you can tell when something is going well. And if it's somewhere in the middle, then it's probably not going well. So I was sat at home day after day, stressed out that, oh, what's not happening? Something's not right. I've got pressure to do this. I don't really want to do this thing, but I feel like I should, but I don't want to. And it's just that cycle of, feeling shitty about something you don't want to do or feel pressured to do and it's not the thing that you really love or you feel like you should be loving something about it. It took me a while to figure out that I just need to stop doing the shit that I don't want to do. Like and that was there was I think one of the interviews I looked at was the guy from Codepad. and he yeah, was just that's so Yeah, he was just so straightforward of just like look, I only do things it's like the decision matrix, or it it's either gonna make me money Make my users happy or not take a lot of t- or be easy to do. And there's got to be at least two of those things, otherwise, I won't do it. And I was just like, that's just an insane way of thinking, like in a good way, thinking that I was like, I'd love to just say, okay, either just I want to figure out my own almost work principles of what are the things I want to do it and how do I want to do them. So I spent a lot of time on that last year. And yeah, that's uh, how so many things were stripped away.
0: What did you end up coming up with on your list of work principles?
1: So. I think it was more of a I mean I don't know if they're necessary principles, but I took away the monthly pricing, like a recurring revenue, because I think people have got three thousand recurring revenue products that they're already paying for already and they keep on building, building up. And if I've got a recurring revenue product every month, I have to give that person that value all over again. So I've just gone with makepad for now. This might change soon. Um is the the lifetime pricing. Um so they pay once. They basically should get that value straight away. And then I don't feel like I'm in debt to them any longer. It's already like, we've done our deed. Now, just enjoy all the rest of the other stuff that you get now, basically for free. Another one was, I want to be able to just build the things that I want to build whenever I want to build. And if I don't record something and I upload it one week, I don't want to feel bad about that. If I decide to build five things one day or that week, I upload them all, then that's like great. But I don't want to be on anyone else's schedule. I want to be... On my own if I want to go offline for two weeks which I just did I came back yesterday then I want to be able to do that so it's just some of these little things that I was thinking about and one of yeah I think it was more of a Paul Jarvis says it in his company of one is focus on doing less I think yeah that was a big a big one for me because not thinking about I have to grow 10% every week or anything like that so if you had like a 10k month one month the next month was like 7k you should not be feeling bad about that because 7k month is insane like people are, are programmed to feel bad about a decline in growth over that month but you still had a, like a fantastic growth that like many people would would love to have so um yeah that's something that's, that's stuck with me as well
0: yeah this is good stuff and i'm noticing that it's all about feelings you know it's about how do you feel good as a founder? How do you make sure you don't feel undue pressure? How do you make sure you don't actually hate the business that you started? How do you make sure that yeah. things are going well, you don't feel guilty or bad or behind? And that's really the whole point. right? The whole reason to start a company is to make yourself feel good. So I think more people should really follow this example of setting out some principles at the very beginning. Because if you don't, if you don't define like what you stand for, what you will do, what you won't do, then you end up just being sort of swept away by whatever wave you're a part of. If you're Part of the product hunt, raise money. Uh, you know, start like a high-growth startup crowd. You're just gonna follow whatever principles they set forth and copy whatever they do, and that might not be the thing that makes you happy. So you have to deliberately make those decisions yourself.
1: Yeah, I think like designing the business that you want to build is a like a huge part of something when you're starting it. I think, for example, another one of mine was if I have double the amount of customers, I don't want to have double the amount of support. So what does this company look like this week compared to what may it look like in three months' time, six months' time? And I probably wouldn't look any further out than six months because things do change. But, yeah, you essentially, who wouldn't want to have an easy business that brought them in 300K a year where they get to do what they want on their own schedule? There's no pressure. They enjoy talking to their customers because that, like, you're not fighting to try and get them to keep on paying you and you're not trying to, like, keep up appearances or anything like that it's more of a i'm enjoying doing this it just so happens that some things you need to pay for people pay them and it all sort of is working out for now i mean not to say that everything will go, will make a pad will be like this next year who knows but it's how i want to be right now with how i'm running make pad and it's been really good for me over the last sort of six months for sure
0: one of the tricky things here is that while you're designing the ideal business that you'd like to run that makes you feel good and makes you happy You also have to design a business that works, that actually makes money, that grows at least to some degree where you can justify continuing to run it. What was that process like for you in deciding to run MakerPad?
1: So after NewCo, I sort of realized that focusing on doing less, what do people like? What do I like doing? And it came down to essentially the, like how I started it. it was, I like making videos, well, not necessarily making videos, but I like showing people how to build something without code. So I said, why don't I just, do that one thing so that's all i did was that one thing and yeah i reinvented it as makeup pads and people have just been loving it since it's been incredible and it was one of those times where i just thought this is like this is right people are liking this this is sticking people are like saying that they couldn't ever build something before and then now they've got actually something built like that's a huge thing for me there's xyz founders who are asking for my templates and using my tutorials to build things themselves, like the community's 25% at least developers. So it's like a huge crowd of technical people who just want to look at another way of doing something. And just hearing all these things made me almost like know that this is the thing that I should be doing. Like you said, it's difficult to design a business where you don't know if it's going to work and it's going to be like yeah, financially beneficial to you to actually do it. So after... If I have a week where I feel like everything's been reactive rather than proactive, so I'm replying to people or I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I'm running off my own to-do list or email inbox, I just like take a Friday or take the weekend and think, wait, what's gone wrong for this to be what my last week was like? Why is this not how it was or how I wanted it to be? And then sometimes it takes a few adjustments. Sometimes it's things like you've you got to just not reply to our email or you've got to just let things like not be an issue and just yeah try and re rejig the rejig the model every uh, every few weeks seems to be my my thing you just sort of look up look back and think okay is this the right direction i was thinking and planning on going is it changing is it like messing it up for my, my happiness level or what so just rethinking that whenever that happens
0: yeah, you always have to kind of stay on top of your business. Otherwise, it'll get away from you because it's it's pretty much a living, breathing thing. You know, you've know, you got customers, you've got emails coming in, you've got features that are sort of begging to be created. And if you don't control what you're doing, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to find a path of its own and eventually you'll find yourself doing something you don't like. So I think that's a very wise approach to sort of step back at the end of every week and ask yourself if that's the week you really wanted to have and if that's the week you want to keep having in the future.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think there's so many things that I... Like I could build with makepad and so many directions I could take it in. But I'm very aware of what I did with Nuco and like when I'm building something, I'll build it maybe thirty minutes an hour. So for example, there's a there's a higher marketplace where you can hire experts for like no code experts. That to me seemed like it's something that needed to be built and just because I could build it didn't mean I should have. But I built like a landing page in half an hour and people are up there, there's there's over a hundred people listed, but I can tell already that I shouldn't be putting my focus into that. That's up there. If people want to use that to find other people and message them, and then I'm think I'm all for it. That's not where I'm going to go and try and look at making my money at the moment and try and grow that that one piece of it because that's not what I initially set out to do. So it's always a nice sort of thing to remember. Just because you can build it doesn't mean you sort of you should or you should build it to completion. Just like do the minimum and. And let it take course itself sometimes
0: so let's talk about what you initially set out to do. You said that your passion really was building these these apps without using code and teaching other people how to do the same. Is that really different than what you're doing with your previous business nuco
1: nope That's the, that was the uh, I think that was the funny thing is that it was that when I sort of took that time to reflect and look back, I thought, well, what was the thing that I thought that was working at Nuco and the people really liked and that I enjoyed doing it was. That it was building things without code and teaching other people how they were paying for it. It was it was going well. I just since I've gone back to that focus of build the things that you want, like I want to build. There's no like priority list based on anyone else's agenda. It's just it's just nice to just have. Here's how I actually built it. Here's the recordings of how I built it. And yeah, you can go and build it yourself too. I
0: like that setup for now. There's a quote with Charlie Munger that I love. Somebody asked him and Warren Buffett during a Q and A session. I think what their sort of unified principle was for investing for business. And he said, they kind of stick to the things that they enjoy doing and they have enough good sense that when something's working, they keep doing it. In fact, he said, the fundamental algorithm of life is to repeat what works. And that's exactly what you did with Nuco. You cut out all the parts of your business that didn't work and you took the part that was working and you just doubled down on that. Because why on earth would you go back to the drawing board throughout the entire business, start something completely new when you know you've got like this one kernel of it that works really well. Walk us through the process of how this works exactly. For example, you've got this article from Superhuman. Everybody read this article, it was kind of like, how do you use surveys to determine whether or not your company has hit product market fit? How did you take that and turn that into a tutorial so that people could do that without code?
1: So often what I do is if I figure out how to build something, I might record my screen for an hour, three hours, four hours, whilst I'm figuring out how to build something, and then... I might do the exact same thing again. I might say, okay, I figured out how to do that. I'll record my screen and build it again, hopefully in a lot less time. And then I'll just split it up into smaller videos. I like everything to be sort of a few minutes long. And I don't do audio yet. I don't do audio on my videos because I don't like doing it, for one. (laughs) And I remember I had, I think when Nuco launched, there was one review from someone who said, oh, this is really cool, but his voice is dreadfully dull. So I was like, oh, lovely. That's that's lovely. And there are just some people who just could do these tutorials with a voiceover and just think it sounds awesome. But to me, how I like to do it and how I like to consume it is there's a video and here's all the text to follow along. And if it's like a two minute video or less and the text is there to accompany it, I feel like that's the best way to do it. Now, I may get some more people on soon and maybe we'll talk about that to do some tutorials and there will be people who teach in a different way. But for now, that's just sort of how I do it. And it's easy for me to create stuff that way. I think there's, um, there's an analysis paralysis in this, in that if I've got to create a video, I know I've got to do a tutorial and I've got to like, it's got to be a certain length of time. It's got to have these certain features and it's going to have the audio, even like the processing of trying to think I've got to do that thing. almost stops me from doing it. And then, I put it off for weeks and weeks and then it becomes such a big thing that I never want to get around to doing it. So I'd rather it seem like an easy thing that I'm just messing around. I'm recording stuff as I'm messing around. People can see how I mess up and then fix something. and They can see it that way in that everything's not like a really polished, perfect thing. And a lot of these things you do just have to be curious and
0: like mess
1: around and play with things until, until they actually work together.
0: How do you make money from all this? You mentioned that one of your takeaways from Nuco is that you don't want to charge recurring revenue, you just want to charge a one-time fee upfront. Do people pay you to access these tutorials on Makerpad?
1: Yes, yeah, so we've got the be about 4 500 users on the pro pro membership for now. So it's quite a, quite a lot at the moment and there are a lot of those who are just free because I did some some promotions with Women in Tech and and stuff like that where I've given out free free memberships. And it's not to say that I'll not ever do a recurring model because I know some people want to have less money down because they just want to access that one course or whatever it is. And also it's a way to have a bit more predictability and revenue. So if I hire someone like instructors, that might be something we play around with. But for now, we just have lifetime memberships. But we also have a B2B side, which is companies pay us. And I'll work with them to create content and have like a, a company profile on Nipad. So if you go on to like the Airtable profile, you'll see tutorials built with Airtable. you'll see job posts from Airtable, which can either be technical or non-technical roles and just have a little bit of a uh, an overview of what Airtable can do because my thought process is people won't necessarily go to Airtable to realize what Airtable can do. They might want to go somewhere. To see what can I build with something first. So if they see I can build a sales CRM, I can build a product market fit model, and they use an Airtable, maybe I should go and use Airtable. So from there, I think they'll then navigate to Airtable. So there's tons of companies. I mean, there's so many companies out there. Email marketing tools, newsletter creation tools. There's just thousands that I could be reaching out to, and probably should be reaching out to. But again, it's one of those. For now, everything's sort of okay. So I'm just I'm ticking along and I'm choosing the, uh, the best tools to partner with. So I've got a few amazing tools like Boundless, Clay, Bubble Webflow, Airtable, Zapier, Standard Library. There's a yeah, there's a good bunch coming on and, and working with us where we can create some uh, some awesome content out there as well. And uh Glide as well, which has been an amazing one recently with the, uh, the mobile app space.
0: Cool. So, how would you say your revenue breaks down between these two sources? On one hand, the makers who are paying you for these tutorials to learn how to build stuff without code, and on the other hand, these companies who are creating content with you and really just paying to be advertised.
1: So, I think I think there's been about 130k revenue this year. I'd say maybe 50k is the business, the business side, and then the rest is
0: these memberships. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty even split. It's like not often that yeah. I talk to people who have multiple business models that are both pulling equal weight. Yeah. And
1: the thing is, I could, like I said, I could
0: be spending 12 hours a day just
1: cold emailing and chasing down companies. But I almost don't want to do that, I guess, for several reasons. But it's more of a wash right for Makeup now and just exploring things. It's nice to have the freedom to sort of casually explore certain different things and,
0: and how it all works. So I've heard a lot about what you're working on from my friend, Lintai. She's sort of working with you. She's sort of a mentor for you uh, in the sales department because she spent the last year and a half doing sales for her business, Key Values. And I'm kind of a mentor to her for other parts of her business. So maybe you can bring things full circle, Ben. You can mentor me on the sales (laughs) stuff. What does your sales process look like for MakerPad and how do you actually approach these businesses and convince them to partner with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, Lynn's been a massive, massive help to me since since we uh, got connected. So yeah, definitely shout out to her. But a lot of these companies I've actually just been working with, I say working with, I've just chatted to over the last, God knows how long, just because they're in the no-code space and I seem to be the person in the no-code space, which is great. Like they reach out and say, what do you think of this? Is this cool? Can we have you on this ebook? Can you give your opinion here? Can you do this? Can we talk about this? So those conversations have happened naturally, and lots of people will ask me because they they know I've got my sort of finger on the pulse of the no code space and what people are wanting. So we usually just have connected through that, and then yeah, it just goes from there. Just the only companies that we've that I've sort of sold on have been ones where we've made that connection first without being like, "Hey, do you want to come on to Makepad and and have a profile?" It's never usually that cold email. So. I don't know what the sales process is yet. I haven't figured it out, but I imagine it's going to be more of a hey. I've used your tool to create ten tutorials on MakerPad so far. They're getting thousands of views already. We should work together to create even more and like really give the community what they need because I think that's that works out in the in the best interest for everyone. There's no like no one comes off badly there, and it's what everyone in that whole sort of triangle wants.
0: So we've talked about revenue, we've talked about how your product works. Let's talk about the expenses for a bit, because the expenses are what really slow down a lot of indie hackers, like how long it takes to build stuff, how much time you're investing, and also how much money it takes. With you, it seems like uh, expenses aren't much of a problem. You have 95% profit margins, you are working on this on the side in your free time. Uh, How is it so cheap? How is it so quick for you to build something like MakerPad?
1: Well, for it to be quick, it's because I'm using the tools that I'm using. So the site is completely built on Webflow. I use Memberstack, and there's others like MemberSpace who handle the membership side of things with Webflow. So you can just take payments directly there.
0: So explain to us what these tools are. Webflow helps you actually build websites as a non-developer.
1: Yeah, sorry. Webflow is a website builder. Just I mean, a ton more functionality there with a CMS, and they have their own e-commerce features and everything too. Member Stack and MemberSpace allow you to create a membership for a Webflow site. They also do like Squarespace and, and others, but they're really coming along in terms of their functionality. So you basically just have a Stripe account, connect it with, with these membership sites and add it to your your Webflow site. And then you've got a, a fully functioning membership site. People can sign up, sign in, have a payment plan, a recurring re- revenue or lifetime memberships coupons and all that stuff so my only expense there is the hosting on webflow and any Stripe fees i have to pay and then i pay for a zapier account because i test so much with them um, with like new little tutorials and stuff like that and any the automations that i want to have a run through zapier um, and i have a convert account which is my email newsletter and that's going really well there's a ton of people joining us every every day, which is amazing. But all in all, that's basically that's basically it. <laughs> I don't know what else I really pay for.
0: That's really it's it's a lot of tools, but they don't seem to be that expensive and they seem to be pretty fast. We haven't talked a lot about just the no code movement in general. If I'm listening to this podcast, I don't know how to code, but I want to build stuff. What is sort of an overview of the tools that I should be aware of that I that I might not really know about? So there's a
1: bunch of things. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say the best place to go is look on Makeup because we've got a bunch of featured tools and recommended tools that are good for different things. And when you click on each one, you'll see what they're good for building. So something like a mobile app, a lot of people want to build mobile apps. So Glide is just amazing for that. It's essentially all run off the back of a Google sheet. So I built a tutorial for an Airbnb clone with an admin app and the user app, basically all off one Google Sheets. It takes about less than an hour to to build and follow that tutorial. And it's just, yeah, super easy. And
0: it takes you less than an hour to build Airbnb. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. And I did a
1: a web version where I did of Airbnb again, which was Webflow, Airtable and Zapier. And it's not as polished as the mobile version, but it's just like, you can do a lot of this functionality with these tools. And there's things like Boundless Labs and Bubble who have, they have like a workflow management system where you can do, if this happens, then do this, then do that in their platform already. So there's, yeah, there's just so many tools coming out that really push the boundaries with this no code stuff. It's just crazy what you can do and everything. I mean, I'm working with a lot of these where we are just seeing what the new things are coming out. And it's just crazy. I think it's going to be very exciting for the future of what no code is going to be about and what that. So empowers people to be able to build.
0: I saw this clip from uh, the Jetsons last week and there was this robot. It was like an office robot and it was just like moving stacks of paper from one office to another. I think the Jetsons, do you guys have that in, in the UK? <laughs> yeah, we do, do you guys yeah. have that show? Yeah, it's like it came out in like the yeah. 60s or the 70s or something. And it's so interesting like their idea of what the future is going to look like. you know all these futuristic robots, people living in the sky. But if you think about it, when you're talking about all these no-code tools, when you're talking about using Zapier to create rules and automations, you're basically building robots. I mean, in the past, I think they thought the office would be this physical space, but now it's kind of the digital office, and it's you don't have stacks of paper on your desk, you just have like a bunch of Google Docs and emails. Like you don't pass messages back and forth, you don't have alarm systems, you have like notifications. And so it's like we're building better robots today than they ever imagined because our robots don't need physical bodies. And I think it kind of goes to show how hard it is to predict the future. But nevertheless, I'm going to ask you, Ben, to predict the future here. What do you see as as happening in the future of this no-code space? And what are some of the developments that you're excited to see happen that haven't happened yet?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's probably good to clarify here that I don't think it's either you code or it's no code. And I know there'll be some people out there who think I'm just like against learning to code, but it's it's not that at all. It's just that was the least... Path of, that was a path of least resistance for me. It was the easiest way for me to learn to build something in the quickest amount of time that probably wasn't going to go anywhere that I could throw away and not feel like I've wasted nine months learning to build that thing. And we're going to always need people to code to build these no-code tools. Like I'm very aware that that's how a no-code tool works. Is someone's coded it? Like I get that. That's like helps me obviously a lot. But I do think that. Everything that can be or will be made with code could also be made available to use without code. So everything could be like a modular block, and we'll be able to see more of connecting this with that. If this happens, then that happens, and there'll be a lot more like advanced things with that. And I think that it'll end up being because I mean, there's so many basic websites of so and so is a marketplace. It works in a certain way, or it's an on-demand app. They work in certain ways. There's some slight differences and slight variations of how they look or whatever it is but behind the scenes a lot of the functionality is if this happens then that happens and i think we're just getting more and more into the future of that'll be how you can build stuff without code it just depends on how you connect those things and i think it's it's best for everyone that that more of these things happen and allow people to build their own like community website or their own little forum or their own membership site for crossfit for dogs or whatever like the small tiny things they want to be building so I just think that, yeah, if we think that people will be working for themselves or most people will be working for themselves, which I think they will be in the future, then we should be embracing the no-code movement. And I don't think we can expect that everyone should learn to code or will learn to code. I don't think that'll be everything, but I do think that everyone will be looking towards working for themselves and no-code definitely helps towards that future.
0: Yeah, I think when people say that everybody should learn to code, that's a prediction of the future. and. It's hard to predict the future. Justin's got it wrong. Most people get it wrong. Who knows what the future's going to look like? I don't think code will be unimportant, but I could imagine a future in which most of the code is written by a few companies who make these tools, uh, and these tools are good enough for the vast majority of people to make whatever kind of business or app they want to make. So pretty excited to see what's going to happen either way. If we zoom out a little bit here, Ben, you've been a maker, you've been an indie hacker for several years now what's your advice for people who are considering just getting started down this path people who really want to earn a living from the things that they build online
1: I think it's to figure out what is the path of least resistance for them whether that is code or no code and I think that the first several things that you build will be shit anyway so I really wouldn't worry about like what they are and I just think that the first things you build won't be great and you should look at what is a site or a type of site that you like already and how can you build these sort of similar thing or the 80 percent of that thing but for your own interest group and just do that it's okay to like copy these things because that's the best way you're going to learn and figure out how these things work together
0: i love that point of view because if you just sort of assume that your first few products out of the gate are going to be crappy then it's way easier to get started there's less pressure you don't feel like you have to hit a grand slam at your first bat anyway ben thank you so much for coming on the podcast for sharing your story I think MakerPad is one of the coolest, one of the most impressive side projects that I featured on the podcast. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're at makerpad.co and on Twitter you can find me at Ben Tossel, Cool, thanks
0: so much, Ben. Cheers. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review. If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and it really helps other people to discover the show. So your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the -the behind-the-scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.